Today's first reading uh, is found in the Psalms, Psalm 41. For the director of music, a psalm of David. Blessed is he who has regard for the weak. The Lord delivers him in times of trouble. The Lord will protect him and preserve his life. He will bless him in the land and not surrender him to the desire of his foes. The Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and restore him from his bed of illness. I said, O Lord, have mercy on me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely while his heart gathers slander. Then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me. For my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. The second reading is from John 13, verses 1 to 30. John 13, verses 1 to 30. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having left his own, who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. 
I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which one he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast, or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. This is God's word. Thank you both for reading. I'd be grateful if you would keep that second reading open in John 13. And I'm going to pray for God's help as we listen together. God, our Father, we ask that we might not only understand this story, but know how to respond today in Jesus' name. Amen. Twelve men ate with Jesus in intimate friendship. Eleven are washed clean. One walks out into the night. If you and I had been there at the beginning, we would never have guessed which one would walk out into the night. It's a story of love and betrayal. It's a true story. It's a story that is echoed in churches every year. It's a story you and I need to hear because we need to consider what part we might play in the echoes of this story. It was just before the Passover, John 13, verse 1. If you read through John's Gospel, you'll know that the Passover, the time when the lambs were sacrificed for sinners, the Passover beats like a drumbeat through the Gospel. You get one in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, when Jesus cleanses the temple. You get a second one in chapter 6, when Jesus is up in, 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 in Galilee. It was Passover time. It was Passover time. And now again, for the third time in Jesus' public ministry, it is Passover time. This is the third, the final Passover. This is the time when Jesus, the Lamb of God, will be sacrificed, when he will die. And Jesus gathers in an upper room on the evening before his death with his twelve apostles. And Matthew and Mark and Luke in their Gospels, they tell us more. They tell us about the Last Supper. They tell us about the breaking of bread and the wine. They tell us about the institution of the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. John, I take it, assumes that his readers know that story. And he tells us something else. He tells us something that happened that unforgettable evening, a story of love and betrayal. And although those two motifs of love and betrayal are interwoven in the story, the first half of the story majors on love. 
And so I'm going to major on that for the first part. And the second half of the story majors on betrayal. And so there's two things I want us to take away. And here's the first one. And it's, it's really from verses 1 through to 17, the first half of the story. It is that all who are loved by Jesus, loved that is not in a general sense of general benevolence, but loved with a particular personal love, unbreakable love, all who are loved by Jesus like that are washed by Jesus. And John tells us in verse 1 that Jesus knew that the hour had come. And again in John's gospel, the hour, the time, the critical time, the time of Jesus' death runs like a a theme through the gospel. So right back in chapter 2, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Twice they try to arrest him in chapter 7 and 8, and both times John says his hour had not yet come. And now Jesus knows that his hour has come. And John says in verse 1, having loved his own. Right back at the beginning of his gospel, he says that Jesus came to his own, his own people, his own world, those who ought to have acknowledged him, worshipped him, loved him, obeyed him, followed him. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. And as you read through the gospel again and again, you get a division between those who reject him and those who receive him. Back in chapter 6, you could look it up later, there's a critical turning point where uh, Jesus teaches some hard things about his death. And most of the people following him, the crowds following Jesus, carried along by the bars and the excitement, most of them turn away. They say, this, this is too hard. We can't cope with this. And uh, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to turn away as well? And Simon Peter speaks for them when he says, where else are we going to go? You've got the words of eternal life. So by the time you get to chapter 13, when Jesus, when John says Jesus loved his own. He's speaking to that little group of 12, those who'd stuck with him through thick and thin, who'd stuck with him not only through the good times of Jesus' ministry, the popular times, the, if you like, the easier times, but through the harder times. And John says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the end of his life, and to the full extent of his love as he goes the next day to the cross. And when you and I hear this story, these 12 men sitting with Jesus, we see what somebody has called the Church of Christ in embryo. There is the Lord with his church sitting or, or reclining, uh, eating in fellowship with them. And the truth that John sets before us is that those who are loved by Jesus are washed by Jesus. So verse 2, the evening meal was in progress, and John says the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. There is a supernatural evil, the devil, and he has already been working in Judas. Judas has opened himself to evil, and the betrayal of Judas Iscariot is the final act in a a long slide away from loyalty. And that theme of betrayal, we'll come back to that later. But verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. And therefore, therefore, he got up and the story starts. 
So John says, when you and I watch this story, and we're there in our mind's eye to see this dramatic washing, we are to see Jesus visibly doing an expression, a visible expression of his love for his own uh, just before the cross. And the story starts in verses 4 and 5 with a familiar action and a very surprising actor. Jesus gets up. They're, they're reclining for a formal meal, probably around a sort of U shape of tables, probably three tables in the shape of a U with Jesus uh, in the middle of the central table. That would be the natural place for, for the senior one to be. Uh, obviously reclining with the head at the table, the feet away from the table. And the tradition was that you, you, you leant on your left elbow so your right hand was free to, to eat. Um, and there they are reclining at table. And Jesus gets up and he takes off his outer clothing. He strips to his loincloth like a slave. He wraps a long towel, perhaps around his shoulder and his waist, so that some of the towel free at the end to, to, to dry people with. He pours water into a basin or a jug, verse 5. And he begins quietly to go around the group, pouring clean water over their dusty feet, perhaps into a, a, a dirty water basin, and then drying their feet. The action is familiar, sort of thing that, that a slave would do at a, a formal meal. They, weren't, they were quite familiar with that, nothing surprising about that. But the person doing it is astonishing. And I imagine there was a stunned silence, don't you? I imagine conversation ceased as the Lord Jesus went round one after another after another. They didn't know what to say until Jesus comes, verse 6, to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter, so helpfully for us, vocalizes what most of them must have been thinking. And Simon Peter says, Lord, are you, and it's emphatic, are you going to wash my feet? And Simon Peter, bless him, he's he, he loves the Lord Jesus. And what he's saying, this is all wrong. I'd gladly wash your feet. Just give me a chance. You mean the world to me. I'll wash your feet. I'll do anything for you. But are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, you don't realize now what I'm doing, verse 7. To which I suppose the obvious answer is, of course I realize what you're doing. You're washing my feet. <laughs> It's obvious. You don't have to be terribly clever to know that. But Jesus says, no, 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 you don't realize. Later on, you're going to understand. Later, you're going to understand what this means. That happened a number of times in John's gospel. Right back in chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple. And John says, at the time, they didn't realize what was going on. And uh, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey in chapter 12, John says, at the time, we didn't understand what this meant. And Jesus says, I'm doing something, and at the moment you don't understand. Later on, you're going to understand what this means when I've died and risen again, when the Holy Spirit comes. And Simon Peter says, it's so wonderfully in character, verse 8, no. <laughs> no, you're not going to do it. It's off limits. And I, I wonder if Peter makes as if to get up and to take the towel from the Lord Jesus. It would be in character if he did, wouldn't it? And the Lord Jesus cuts him short and he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You have no share with me. And the word translated part 
in our English Bibles. It, it's the word used, if, if you're a Bible reader and you know the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, the prodigal son says to his father, give me the inheritance, give me the share, give me the part. It's the same word. Give me my share. In the Old Testament, the tribes were told that when they went into the promised land, they would have a, a part, a share, an inheritance in the promised land. In the book of Revelation, the word is used of having a share in the tree of life and the holy city in Revelation 22. And Jesus says, if you're going to have any share in me, in being joined with me and being my disciple, if you're going to have any benefit from what I'm doing for you, then you must let me wash you. At which point Peter, of course, says, um, because he loves the Lord Jesus, and Peter does a wonderful 180 degree, you know, about turn. And he says, oh, well, if that's the deal, <laughs> if, if having a share, an inheritance, a part, a benefit of being joined with you depends on being washed, I want a shower. <laughs> Just wash all of me, please. I want all the washing by Jesus I can have, says Simon Peter. It's marvelous. And Peter and Jesus says, verse 10, there's no need for that. People who've had a bath... People whose whole bodies have been washed only need to wash their feet, that is, from the dust of the day. Their whole body is clean. And you, and the you is plural, all of you, are clean except one. Because he knew who was going to betray him. Again, this motif of betrayal comes in, and we'll come back to it again. But let's pause there and think about the general truth. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing that they don't understand at the time, but they will understand later. What is Jesus doing that is an expression of the love for his own as he loves them to the end? What is he doing with this washing? What is this washing that, that, that is essential in order to have a benefit from being a disciple of Jesus? Well, is it not a visible sign of the washing of forgiveness of sins that the Lord Jesus is about to achieve for them on the cross. You don't yet understand what I'm doing, but when I've died for sinners on the cross, when I've died to wash you clean from the guilt of a dirty conscience, when I've died to wash you clean with forgiveness, then you will understand that what I did for you that memorable evening was an outward sign of what I did for you in your hearts by the cross. Now, I take it the whole body, just feet thing. I, it's difficult to be absolutely sure what Jesus meant by that. But I take it when he says you, 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 you are clean, he's saying that by trusting in Christ, they, they, they are forgiven people, as every Christian disciple is. But I take it that he's, he's doing what John in his first letter says, that the, he says the, the, the blood, the death of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, But then he says, if we confess our sins, as we've just done corporately together here, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And I take it that that what Jesus is speaking about by the feet washing is that just as you can have a bath or a shower and, and if you walk barefoot in the Middle East, your feet will get dirty and dusty, so your feet need to be washed. In a similar sort of way for the the, the, the forgiven person, if I belong to Jesus, I am forgiven, fully forgiven. I have, as it were, had a shower inside, morally, in terms of guilt. But that the, 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 the dirt and the dust and the muckiness 
of a sinful world attaches itself to me every day. Every day I fall into sin in my heart, in my words, in my deeds. And I need, as it were, a fresh appropriation of that washing as the Lord Jesus washes my feet. Now, I guess the Lord Jesus washed Judas's feet as well. There's no visible indication that anybody was surprised uh, about anything. He, Jesus just went round washing them all. He didn't miss anybody out. But Judas' heart was not washed. And the question for you and for me is this. Will you be washed by Jesus? Have you been washed by Jesus? Are you submitting to being washed by Jesus? Will you admit that the best thing you can say about yourself and the best thing I can say about myself is I'm somebody who's been washed by Jesus? Archbishop William Temple in the mid-20th century pointed out how distasteful this is to us, as of course it was to Peter. I'd prefer it if Jesus came to me and said, I'm your Lord and I call you to do some great acts of service. I'd like that. There's something in me that would like that, wouldn't you? Jesus come to you and say, I need your help. I'd love you to be a, a great servant for me. And, and then I'd think, well, maybe if I serve reasonably well, I could take a bit of pride in how well I'm serving. I could become an elder, a pastor, a group leader, an apprentice, an administrator, a treasurer, a well-known foot-washing hero. I said, well done me, I would say to myself. But the Christian life begins not with me serving Jesus, but with Jesus serving me, washing me, doing for me what I cannot do for myself. And the Christian life continues with the Lord Jesus doing for me what I cannot do for myself, washing me day by day from the dirt of each day. Who am I? And the Christian answer is I'm a helpless, hopeless, dirty, soiled, messed up, guilty person who has been washed by Jesus. And that moment of tension between Jesus and Peter says it. By nature, you and I do not want Jesus to wash us. I don't want to admit that I'm so dirty, that my heart is so dirty, so soiled, that only the death of Jesus can make me clean, that there's no other way for me to have a share in the life to come. And just as Peter contributed nothing to the washing except the dust that he had on his feet, so I contribute nothing to my cleansing except the moral dirt from which Jesus cleanses me. Friends, you and I are either washed by Jesus in our hearts or we're not. You can't be half washed by Jesus. And the question you and I need to ask is, am I washed by Jesus? Has he done that for me? Have I submitted to being washed by Jesus? And in many ways, the test of whether I've submitted to being washed by Jesus is, am I day by day confessing my sins and submitting to the fresh washing, as it were, the fresh application of that washing day by day to be washed by Jesus? And only after that does Jesus go on in verses 12 to 17 to teach them. And he says, he, he, he puts his outer garment back on. He goes back to his place at the table. And verse 12, he says, do you understand what I've done for you? 
And the answer, of course, is no, they don't understand what he's done for them. Just as Peter didn't. They don't understand at that point. They will later. But they don't at that stage understand what he's done for them. And Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord. And rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I've washed your feet, this is what you should do for one another. I've set you an example. And all through Christian history, that example has been held up before us. In in 1 Peter, Peter's first letter, he says to elders, people in leadership in Christian churches, clothe yourselves in humility. In 1 Timothy, Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 5, there are some godly widows who are described as having washed the feet of Christians. I take it that's metaphorical. They've, they've, They've shown loving service. And I think it may be that if washing symbolizes forgiveness, it may be that the washing that Jesus calls us to do for one another is particularly the forgiving of one another. That as I grasp that I'm a man who's been washed by Jesus, so I grasp that that washing needs to extend to others when I need to forgive them the ways in which they've hurt or harmed me. But the main thing is to understand what Jesus has done for them. He has washed them. From verse 18 to the end, we come into the betrayal part of the passage. And if the first thing we learn is that those who are loved by Jesus are washed by Jesus, the second thing is that it is possible to be close to Jesus, but not washed by him. Judas Iscariot scares me. Judas Iscariot frightens me. It's deeper than a feeling of horror at what he did. What he did was dreadful, and it is horrifying. But what scares me about Judas is that I can so easily see myself doing what he did. I'm not particularly scared by the chief priests and the Sadducees. They were always against Jesus. They were outsiders to Jesus and his circle. But Judas Iscariot was an insider. He saw the miracles. He heard the teaching, not just the public teaching to the crowds, but the private teaching to the the, the follow-up meetings, to the insiders. He was there with Jesus day by day. He was in the inner circle. He was the treasurer of the disciples. He wasn't on the edge, the fringe. He was right in the core of the disciple group. He saw the wisdom of Jesus, the patience of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the consistency of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the purity of Jesus. Judas Iscariot was the insider's insider. And I'm an insider. If you're a Christian, you're an insider. I can tell you a story of how I came to faith in Christ, how I came inside, as it were, the circle of, of, of Jesus and his, his disciples. I've been reading my Bible. I know my Bible. I run a Bible training course. I'm an insider. I say my prayers. I can talk the talk. I can can be here on a Sunday and you'll all think, what a good Christian he is. You won't be able to tell anything about what's going on in my heart. You'll just see there's somebody who can talk the talk and look the part and knows his Bible and all that kind of thing. And Judas Iscariot was like that. He was the insider's insider. And that scares me. And that ought to scare you. It's a frightening story, this. It's not that we look at Judas and say, ugh. I look at Judas and I I, I tremble because I think that could so easily be me. The treachery of Judas is like an undercurrent through the story. Right back in chapter 6, 
Jesus says, I've chosen you, the twelve. The end of chapter 6, he says, but one of you's a devil. One of you's evil. And John says in chapter 6, he's talking about Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who was going to betray him. Now, why did Judas betray him? Let's just pause for a moment and think about that. I mean, there's a supernatural reason. John twice says that the devil or Satan entered into him, that he'd surrendered to dark forces of evil. There was a divine reason. It was necessary that Jesus should be betrayed to go to the cross. In, in, in the providence of God and the purposes of God, it was necessary. But I want to think about what humanly, what might have been going on inside Jesus, Judas. And it seems to me that there's at least three things that might well have been going on inside Judas. First of all, in chapter 12, verse 6, we're told that he was a thief. He was the keeper of the money bag. He was the treasurer. And at some point in Judas's discipleship, he began, some of the money began just to stick to his fingers. Probably not much to start with, but just a little bit. And then nobody noticed, and he realized that he could just cream off a little bit of the, 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 the common fund. He was a thief. He loved money. And he, he knew what it was to be in the circle of Jesus' disciples with a guilty conscience. I guess he probably felt bad about it in the early days. And then gradually his conscience became hardened. Outwardly he was a disciple. Inwardly he was angry and guilty and resentful, brooding, planning his exit. Second reason is that he was following a man who was a failure. Near the end of chapter 12, John tells us in chapter 12, verse 37, that just about everybody didn't believe Jesus. At the end of Jesus' public ministry, three years of wonderful miracles and teaching, and just about nobody believed. Now, that's got to test your discipleship, hasn't it? If you've got any ambition in your heart, you like to follow a winner, don't you? It's depressing, isn't it, when your football team gets relegated? You know, you just think, I don't want to, I'm not sure I really want to follow them next season. <laughs> I think I'm going to switch to a better team. And I wonder if that wasn't going on in Judas. That, that, that Easy to follow Jesus when things are going well, when he's popular, when church is full, when, when there's a buzz and harm about being a Christian. But this was testing Judas, and it was too much for him. And the third reason, which is in our passage, is this. I wonder if it wasn't true that Judas was too proud to be washed. That although Simon Peter naturally said, I don't want you to wash me, when Jesus explained why it was necessary, Simon Peter said, yes, wash me. But for Judas, it was too humbling. And for whatever reason, he's opened his life to the devil's influence. And in verse 18, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. And he quotes from Psalm 41, which we had as our first reading, where David was betrayed. And David says, the one who shared my bread, the one who had a meal with me as a sign of loyalty and fellowship and friendship, and to share a meal with, especially to share a meal with a, a king or a senior person, a leader, was a sign of loyalty. If you eat their food, you eat at their table, you're on their payroll. The one who shared my bread has turned against me, literally lifted his heel against me, a gesture of defiance. And Jesus says, That's, that was true for David, but it's going to be finally true for me. I'm telling you now before it happens, he says, when it does happen, you'll believe that I'm, I'm he, I'm the one, I am 
the one I've said I am. I don't want you to be surprised. When you see Judas Iscariot standing in chapter 18 with the party of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus, I don't want you to think that I've taken by surprise. I don't want you to think that I've lost control. Verse 20, he says, if you accept anyone who accepts anyone I send, accepts me, whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. I think he's saying, as I send you, you too will face betrayal. You'll know what it is to be betrayed. And then verse 21, Jesus is troubled in spirit. And even though Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, Jesus is fully and completely human, every cell of his body. And the prospect of this betrayal by his close friend causes, I guess, his lips to tremble and his heart to palpitate. He's troubled in spirit. And with trembling lips, the Lord Jesus says, very truly, 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 one of you is going to betray me. And there's a frisson of horror as the disciples look at one another saying, what's he, what's he talking about? We know he's got enemies outside, but, but, but one of us? And then verse 23, one of them described as the disciple who Jesus loved was reclining next to him. That expression, the disciple who Jesus loved, means, means something like Jesus' most close friend. The one to whom Jesus shared things most closely. The one you could trust to tell you what Jesus was thinking. And he's reclining next to Jesus, and there's probably some significance there. That as Jesus reclines in the middle of the central table... It's quite likely that Judas Iscariot is in the place of honor, the guest of honor, on Jesus' left. Certainly Jesus can give Judas the, the piece of bread later without any awkwardness. So it's quite likely Judas Iscariot was in the place of honor. We can't be sure. And John, because almost certainly this is John the, the gospel writer, the disciple who Jesus loved, seems to be on Jesus' right. And if you can visualize it, if you're, if you're on the right of somebody... You only have to lean back and your head will be, as it were, against their chest and you can whisper something to them without the others hearing. And that, literally, John was, was reclining sort of next to Jesus' chest. And the word translated, uh, the, 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 the word I've translated chest is used in chapter 1, verse 18, where it says of Jesus that Jesus, the Son, was in the Father's chest. The old translations say in the Father's bosom. It means in a place of intimate closeness with the Father. And chapter 118, the son was close to the father, so he can tell us what the father is, reveal the father. And John, the gospel writer, is close to Jesus, so he can tell us what Jesus thinks. And there's this vivid little scene, verse 24, Simon Peter, who's somewhere else, he, he motions to him and he says, you can imagine Simon Peter saying, ask him, ask him. You can imagine Simon Peter just sort of gesticulating like that to John. And John leans back and he says to Jesus quietly, who is it? And Jesus says, it's the one I'm going to give the piece of bread when I've dipped it. And it's a mark of Jesus' kindness that he doesn't say publicly, the one who's going to betray me is the one I'm going to give the bread to. You can imagine what would have happened then, can't you? I imagine Simon Peter would have killed Judas. Don't you? I mean, Simon was pretty quick with his knife. <laughs> It's a mark of Jesus' kindness that he doesn't publicly expose Judas. He tells John, the gospel writer, so that John knows that Jesus knew and can reassure us that Jesus wasn't taken by surprise. 
But he guards Judas, and Judas will leave under the protective silence of Jesus. In verse 27, when Judas takes the bread, Satan entered into him. Now, you can't blame Satan. You can't say, poor old Judas, it was Satan's fault. Any more than if somebody becomes an alcoholic, you can blame alcohol. Or someone becomes a cocaine addict, you can blame cocaine. Or somebody becomes a smoking addict, you can blame nicotine. You can't do that. Because just as in those addictions, so in a thousand little surrenders, Judas has surrendered and opened his heart to evil. And now he finds the time has come when he cannot break free. And what Judas does, he chooses to do. And he is guilty for it. And Jesus says, go and do it quickly. Perhaps he cannot bear the tension. Nobody's surprised when Judas gets up. He's got charge of the money, verse 29. He's the treasurer. Treasurer often has to go and do things, buy stuff, and so on. And then verse 30, as soon as Judas has taken the bread, he went out. He goes out. In his heart, he's gone out long since. Long since he's been there, as it were, in church, but not in Christ. Long since he's been had the appearance of godliness, so that nobody would know that in his heart he wasn't there anymore. And now he goes out, and John comments it was night. Literally night, spiritually night. And we watch in horrors. We see this man who's seen the miracles, who's heard the teaching, who's one of the twelve, who had every privilege known to humankind, who's walked in close fellowship with the Son of God. This man who has surrendered to greed, who's surrendered to a guilty conscience, who's disillusioned by the failure of Jesus. And we watch in horror as he goes out into the night. And he will never return. He will never return to that circle of the love of Jesus. We see him once more in chapter 18 in the darkness of the garden where he comes with the arrest party. But the night that Judas goes into is is going to be an an eternal night. It's very sobering. It's very, very, very shocking. Now, in one sense, Judas is unique. Only he betrayed Jesus to death in history. And yet he is a warning to us. It is possible, friends, to be in church, but not in Christ. And you look round a gathering like this. I look at you, you look at me. We all seem Christian. I mean, if, if you're not a Christian believer, it's lovely to have you here. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those who say that we're Christians. You say that you're Christian, and maybe you've begun to learn to talk the talk and to look like a Christian. It's possible to do that, but not to be in Christ. And the challenge to us is this. The contrast is not between 11 good men and one bad man. They're all bad. The contrast is between 11 bad men who have submitted to being washed, not only in their bodies but in their hearts, and one man too proud to be washed. That's the contrast. Judas' problem is not that Judas isn't sufficiently good. Judas' problem is that he turns away from love. Judas' problem is that he's too proud to be loved and too proud to be washed. And so the question comes to us. Here we are in a Christian gathering. It's all quite relaxed and nice, and we sing songs, and we smile, and drink coffee, and go and enjoy the British sunshine, having a picnic, and all that kind of thing, and it's all very nice. But the challenge of this passage is this. Am I going to be one who is washed by Jesus in my heart? 
Or will I be, be one in, who in my heart am too proud to be washed? In my heart I say, I don't mind looking the part, I don't mind looking Christian, but in my heart I'm looking to go out. And one day I will walk out into the night. That's the challenge. And we should be horrified by Judas Iscariot. My guess is that when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, there were 11 frightened people, men there, and one who wasn't frightened. 11 men who were, who were true believers, true disciples, who were very frightened. And the only person who wasn't frightened was Judas. I guess he was probably angry, bitter, resentful, all sorts of things like that. But not frightened, not frightened that he'd betray Jesus because he knew he was going to betray Jesus. And a friend, I want to say to you, that if you are frightened by Judas Iscariot and you tremble when you see the story of Judas Iscariot, you think, oh, that could so easily be me. That is a good sign. If you are not frightened by Judas Iscariot, that's a really worrying sign. If you read the story of Judas Iscariot and you think, who cares? That's a really worrying sign. But if you and I read the story of Judas Iscariot and you say, oh, please, God, may that not be me. By my own strength, I can't go on following Jesus, but I really want to. I really want at the end of my life for people to say he was loyal to Jesus. That's a good sign. So let's be frightened by Judas in that healthy, good way. And let's be those who submit to being washed by Jesus. I'm going to be quiet for a moment before praying a a prayer. But in the quietness, can I encourage you to search your heart if you are confident that you are washed by Jesus. Thank him for that washing. Pray for grace to persevere to the end. If in your heart you fear that you've never really been washed by Jesus, why not now in your heart submit to that washing, that inward washing? Let's be quiet for a moment and then I'll pray. Jesus said, do you understand what I have done for you? God, our Father, by nature we do not understand. But the Bible teaches us what Jesus has done for all who are washed by him and who will trust him. Father, we pray that you would work in grace and mercy in each one of our hearts, that we might be those washed by Jesus and persevering with Jesus to the end. We ask it for his sake. Amen.